come on a journey with a cinephile. Welcome, everybody, to Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., here recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on episode number 28 here, this is going to be Journey Through the Aughts number four, where I have featured reviews of the 2020 release of Porno and the 1940s film of 1 Million B.C. And on top of that, I have many reviews of Jekyll plus Hyde, a Virgin Among the Living Dead, The Curse of the Komodo, as well as just the other few things that I'm not going to delve too much into, but just kind of recap that I also watched some other things on top of that. But what I'm going to go ahead and do without further ado is to get you first over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. Enjoy. <laughs>
welcome back from that musical break. And the first mini review for this week is going to be Jekyll Plus Hyde. This is from 2006. This is directed by Nick Stilwell. And then it is, the story is adapted by David Court, Nick Stilwell, and Ian Thorley. The screenplay was written by Stillwell as well as David T. Riley, and David T. Riley and Nigel Robbins also helped out with the story being adapted, and then this is also based from the novel from Robert Louis Stevenson. This stars Brian Fisher, Bree Turner, and Jeff Roop. This is a horror sci-fi thriller from the United States and Canada. This is currently sitting on a 4.2 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being... Henry Jekyll is a young science student who, along with his friend Mary, experiments with various drugs and compounds in order to create a personality-enhancing drug. Now, this film, I really didn't know a whole lot about, but I did pick up a copy of it on DVD a few years ago. This was probably right after college when I was seeking out all the versions of this classic tale from Robert Louis Stevenson and to see kind of how they all differed. Other than that, I knew very little about this. And I've been probably sitting on this close to a decade before finally watching this. Now, one thing I do have to give this credit to is that we have Henry Jekyll, who goes by Jay, and that is portrayed by Brian Fisher. And he's also the other character of Hyde. And then the most famous actress that we probably get here is Brie Turner, who plays Martha Utterson. And then Root plays Lanyon, who is a co-student of theirs. Some of these are names from the novel, so I did like that they incorporated that. Lanyon is also trying to be a doctor, but he uses a lot of recreational drugs and makes them himself. And this is something else that Mary, who is Katrina Matthews, now the crux of the story is that she overdoses and passes away. And this kind of cre makes Jay want to try to continue on with their research to try to see if they can complete this drug, as well as trying to make them, I think, a bit more safe. But this does get him to cause to bump heads with a professor who doesn't think this is ethical for what he would like to do here. Now, what I do like about this is that taking this classic tale and then molding it into more of a cautionary one of addiction, because I know usually it is trying to deal with the duality of man here. We get a little bit of that, but when Jay becomes Mr. Hyde, he is not a monster. He's just a, I mean, better looking version of himself, but it's kind of hard for anybody to not realize that it's him. But what I do like there, though, is that they're not hiding his identity. He's staying away from most people that would recognize him and just portraying this new character of Hyde. Now, as I've already kind of touched on a little bit, they're incorporating in the recreational drug use. Now, I really didn't partake much of that in college. I did have some friends that did. I mean, I did try a little bit of stuff here and there, so sorry to my parents if you're listening to this. But I do think that it's an interesting thing to look at, especially in the 2000s and, I mean, even till now, I believe, of kids using things like cocaine or ecstasy or things like that. But what I also like here, though, is that when Jay is doing his experiments, he is tracking them with a video blog. And I think that's kind of cool because he is actually going through the scientific process for his research. But I do have to say, this movie is quite boring, unfortunately. All of the deaths are pretty much done off screen. And it's a shame, though, because the effects that we do get to see are actually pretty good. It's just that we don't get enough of them. So that does kind of bring this down for me. And I'm not going to lie, I kept checking my clock while watching this. And it really just had a lot of struggles to hold my attention, unfortunately. And the last thing I kind of wanted to talk about here as... 
this mini review would be Brian Fisher as Jay just kind of lacks emotions and his reasoning behind doing some of the things that he does doesn't really fit for me but I do think he's a much better hide and I think he has a much better look for that and he just kind of portrays that kind of asshole mentality and I thought that worked there and then Brie Turner I kind of already touched on this a little bit is semi-famous but when I was looking through it I realized that she's really only been a minor character playing you know secondary roles in a lot of things so it's kind of interesting that I did recognize her but this is probably one of her bigger breaks that I'm aware of and this film really is kind of fallen into obscurity as it was a straight to DVD type film so that's all I really wanted to cover for this one wasn't a whole lot that were really there and it's really kind of one of the lesser Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde adaptations that I've seen. So my rating here was going to be a 4.5 out of 10. And then my second film that I wanted to go over is going to be A Virgin Among the Living Dead from 1973. This is directed by Jesus Franco. And we also have some uncredited additional sequences that were done by Pierre Kerut and Jean Roland. This is written by Jesus Franco, and the French dialogue was done by Paul D. Ailes. This stars Christina von Bloch, Carmen Yazeldi, and Rosa Palomar. This is a horror film from Belgium, France, Italy, and Liechtenstein as a co-production. This is currently sitting on a 4.9 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, following the death of her father, a young girl visits her estranged family at their sinister castle in the countryside and comes to realize her eccentric and morbid relatives are not quite alive. Now, this is a film that I tried watching growing up, but couldn't get into it and didn't really know what the heck I was watching. I think what threw me off was the fact that my father purchased the VHS that was listed as Zombie 4, A Virgin Among the Living Dead. This was just a marketing ploy for zombie fans to buy this movie. Now I'll get into it a little bit later because we do have some of the undead here, but not necessarily in the traditional sense. But we really just have this girl, Christina Benton, who is portrayed by Christina Von Block. As she had received a letter that her father passed away, so she is going to a castle in a valley where she is going to, for the real will reading, but then meets her weird family as she arrives. Now, this movie does great with this dreamlike atmosphere, and I think the gritty look from the 70s film really helps to add to that. And I think also to go along with this as well, there's a great soundtrack that also plays this up for me, where the whole time I'm trying to figure out what the heck's going on is we don't have the most coherent story here. But it definitely made me feel uneasy and did hold my interest all the way through. Now, this movie does do some interesting things, though, as well, playing on the superstitious lore with the mysterious woman that we get to see here. Now, going off of this, though, there's some social commentary underneath it. But before I get necessarily into that, the superstitious aspect, I think it's just because this takes place in Europe, where these people have, you know, a long history of experiences where stories are handed down and you kind of get urban legends that way. So I think that's really what this movie is trying to play on a little bit here. And it does it in a pretty interesting way. But getting back to the social commentary that I was bringing up is Christina is the person in the title that they're referring to as the Virgin. I don't know if that necessarily means that she is one in the traditional sense or is she just sexually inexperienced. Now, I'm starting to lean more towards as I'm thinking about it that she might have been an actual virgin just because she talks about that 
she's really seeking a family. So I'm wondering if in London she's having issues with kind of connecting with people, even though she is quite a beautiful woman. And, you know, props to her and many of the women in this is that we get to see most of them nude. But that's something I come to expect when I was coming into this because Franco definitely loves to bring that sleaze and he does not disappoint here. But going from there is Christina is tempted by Carmency or Carmencia, something like that, who is portrayed by Yezaldi, as she definitely is tempting her with some lesbian situations that really shot Christina. But then as we see that she's probably more thinking about it, and we don't necessarily know what's a dream and what's a nightmare, and I think that really adds to it as well. And what also makes it even more eerie is that she talks to people who don't think that anybody is living in the castle as they keep telling her that everybody that lives there is dead and she is trying to convince everybody that's not the case so it really does kind of make these people seem like they could be going crazy here and what is really happening and you know all the things to this effect and this all just kind of worked for me that even though we don't have the most coherent story it kept my interest and you know seeing the nudity really helped me enjoy this film and i think it also has benefited that it only has a runtime of about 90 minutes. But something I kind of wanted to bring up is this film does really try to capitalize on that zombie four. And this is something you'd see a lot from Europe where they would just tack a kind of title on to other movies here in order to try to confuse the audience. Or they would release a movie under many different titles. And I think there's a few different scenes that were kind of removed at different points, which is why we have these uncredited directors because i did see on my dvd there was some cut footage of actual zombies which i would have been interested because that would have probably ramped up the horror a little bit more on this movie than what we really get but i don't necessarily know if it's needed because it doesn't necessarily feel like that type of movie to me either so just some interesting things that i kind of noticed when i was looking there and i should also point out franco also has a cameo in this movie as a semi-mute character named basio who's pretty weird to be honest and i kind of dug it but that's what i wanted to delve into for this movie and my rating here is a 6.5 out of 10 after this first time watch then up next i have the curse of the komodo from 2004 this is directed by jim warnowski but he did it under the name of jay andrews this is written by steve latshaw his stars tim abel melissa brazelli william langola lois this is an action-adventure-comedy-horror-sci-fi thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 2.8 on IMDb and a 2.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, genetically engineered Komodo dragons have become ginormous creatures hunting people on a remote tropical island. A small group of scientists must stop the dragons before they escape the island and destroy the rest of the world. Now, this was a movie that I never heard about, to be honest. While I was working through a horror movie encyclopedia that I am, you know, to round out my viewing of films that I've never seen or heard of. Now, when I saw the year this came out, I was nervous as this is the bad CGI era for many creature features. Other than that, I had no knowledge of what I was getting into. And what I did find to be quite interesting here, though, is when I looked up to see that Jim Warnowski was the director of it, and I remember that he did Chopping Mall, it was kind of interesting to see. And I started looking through his career, and it seems he's done a lot of these type of movies, especially even starting back in the early 90s. And it makes a whole lot of sense that he's also kind of delved into uh, softcore porn, as we have Gloria and Gilbert here who gets completely topless as well as just in her underwear. While they're kind of in the middle of a weird situation. And on top of that as well, Melissa Brazelli, who plays a character by the name of Tiffany also puts on a 
white tank shirt and not wearing a bra and she is quite busty so you can pretty much see through that so when i figured out what this guy has done i'm not surprised that these are some of the things that are in it now this isn't a bad concept though to get these people on the remote island problem that i kind of have here though is that this feels heavily borrowed from 1959's the killer shrews where they established that these animals can eat you know pretty much their body weight every single day in order to you know stay alive and that they don't notice that there's any sort of animals on the island so i feel they're taking a lot of the things from that movie here and putting it into this and on top of that we have drake who is paul logan in this movie is leading a group of criminals that include reese who is cam newland as well as tiffany and they're being flown in a helicopter by jack who is tim abel i like that they rob a casino on pearl harbor and then they try to fly away in his helicopter but then due to a massive storm they have to land on this island of the isle of damas which is supposed to be like 300 miles south of honolulu so I don't mind the robbery and everything to get them together. It just feels kind of not great after that. And they kind of just give up on trying to do story here. I do also like that Komodo dragons are probably the... I know they're the largest lizards in the world. And pretty much the closest thing that we have, I would say, to like dinosaurs. So making them much larger here does work as well. Now, the CGI though in this isn't the worst. But it relies too much on it. And some of the practical effects that we get work. This movie does have a weird zombie angle where... Komodo dragons are supposed to have highly bacterial type saliva and what they're trying to incorporate here is that with the genetic changes that have come over them is that when somebody gets it on them they become zombie-like but they really don't flesh this out or kind of delve too much into it so I really don't feel like it fits here and it just feels like they're throwing things at a wall and just kind of see what sticks but it's just lacking in story and it didn't really hold my attention. I do feel like this is a fun film, though, for people that want to just kind of watch it in a group and have drinks with. Don't take it too seriously. So me trying to watch it with a critical eye isn't the greatest way to kind of go after this. But what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, my rating here is a 3.5 out of 10. So I can't recommend this if you're trying to watch a good movie. But if you really just want something fun, I do think you can get some enjoyment out of this for sure. This was a little bit lighter week for me in watching things as I actually just moved. So... It did cut down a little bit on my watching, but I also did check out, this has been over the last few weeks, but I finished the series Lore that is on Amazon Prime. Now, this is a documentary horror show. This has 12 episodes, and it's taking different stories. Like, for example, they have the Burke and Hare story. They also have things like being buried alive, the background on the werewolf stories there's the elizabeth bathory story just different things like this are all included on the show and they actually give historical and real life evidence of different things and kind of where these stories came from i did find it to be interesting i thought the first season was a lot better for me though as in the first season they actually did it more of a documentary style where they are giving you different information and then kind of giving you more of the real facts, where the second season they decided to go a little bit different and actually do almost dramatizations of everything. I wasn't the biggest fan of that myself, as I kind of liked the more academic approach than what they did in the second half, where the second season just kind of seemed more things that we've already kind of seen rehashed in movies or other things to that effect, as they don't really necessarily give you too much information. Now, like, some of them they do, but not all of them, so there's kind of my stance on that. And the other thing that I also watched was Julia's Eyes, a Spanish film. Now, this was for Duncan McLeish over on the podcast Under the Stairs for his movie club. So I watched that. If you want to hear my review, I would recommend checking out that episode later this month, as it will be one of the ones featured on that. But 
I just kind of wanted a recap of why this is a tad bit shorter as I only watched, I believe, three movies this week. But I did do some other things, which kind of took up some time as well. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is send you over to the trailer of my first featured review. You guys hear that? The science of porn is well known. The human brain, when aroused by erotic images, dumps chemicals into the bloodstream, which send the viewer into full throttle, give me more mode. No, that's right, and we may think that we're just being curious, but that will turn into an obsession. And for my first featured review on this episode, it is going to be Porno from 2019, but it is getting its 2020 release after it has done its festival rounds. This is directed by Keola Racel, and it's co-written by Matt Black and Lawrence Vincelli. This stars Evan Daves, Jillian Mueller, and Caitlin Pierce. This is a comedy horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.9 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd, with synopsis being when five teen employees at the local movie theater in a small Christian town discover a mysterious old film hidden in its basement. They unleash an alluring succubus who gives them a sex education written in blood. Now this is a film that when I first heard about it, I was pretty intrigued. And that was, I think, when it was making its festival rounds when it first came up, and then I know Nightmare on Film Street did an interview with the director who gave some insights into it as well and that piqued my interest even more and when i heard this was finally hitting vod thanks to fangoria it really made me excited that i could finally check this out and so we start this off where there's a couple that are having sex there is then a couple of teens though that we see who are outside watching them of abe who is evan daves and todd who is larry saperstein Todd makes a statement about how he wants to go since he can't get caught again and get sent away. And then the two of them head to work at the local movie theater that is run by Mr. Pike, played by Bill Phillips. He's deeply Christian and takes his job very seriously. It seems to be the end of summer, and we have Chaz, who is Jillian Mueller, who has been promoted to assistant manager. And then back from camp that summer is Ricky, who is Glenn Stott. And their projectionist is Heavy Metal Jeff, portrayed by Robbie Tan. Now, I should point out here that Jeff is straight edge. He hates drinking, smoking, anything that is not Christian. Now, the crew is allowed to watch a movie that night after the theater closes, but they need to decide between A League of Their Own and Encino Man, which I actually found this to be a pretty creative way to inform us that we're in 1992. Now, I did watch this with Jamie, and I know I let her watch the trailer as I don't normally do that. And she had pointed out 
if this was in 1992. I guess the trailer said something about this, but I ended up looking up the two movies, and I thought that was pretty strategic that they both released that year. Now, there's some debate as to which one amongst the group of which movie they're actually going to watch that night. Now, things all change, though, when a homeless man gets into the theater and he runs amok. They try to kick him out, but he reveals a hit hallway behind a curtain now they go into it looking for him but instead find an archive room which looks like a fire took place inside there they find a film canister that wasn't damaged and they decide that they're going to watch that instead but something that i noticed on it is that there is a symbol that i assume was just a satanic or it's definitely something that is pagan and i could be wrong but i also feel like this is the same mark that is burned into the face of that homeless man now at first Jeff is against watching that, but Chaz steps up as the assistant manager and convinces him and the group that they should check that movie out. Now, they aren't expecting what they get. It shows a woman who is nude, and that is Caitlin Pierce, as well as a man. They perform some kind of ritual, and the symbols look pagan that keep flashing across the screen. The canister also had a similar marking on it, like I said. Jeff shuts it off and tells the group that they're not going to watch that filth in his theater on his projector. Now this upsets Todd and he wants to keep watching it as it intrigues him. I think this is partially because he's kind of that nerdy virgin type character, but I also feel like he might be kind of like me that he's intrigued with the artistic flair that the movie that they're watching is because at the beginning of it, he asks if this is an art house film and Abe doesn't really know. But what he ends up doing is barring himself in the projector room and starts it back up again. This causes some odd things to start happening as they start to see a mysterious woman throughout the theater. And it's usually when they're alone that they know they find her. They also cannot escape from the theater as the keys are gone and they can't unlock the door. Now we start to learn that there's some dark secrets and inner desires about this group of religious teens. And the woman might also be much more as well. Now, I'm going to end my recap there, but you could probably tell that I was going to enjoy the social commentary that this movie is trying to give to us. There are some things that I won't be able to share as I don't really want to spoil them. And to be honest, this film doesn't have the deepest story. And I don't feel that it really needs to have a spoiler section where I just kind of reveal every little aspect to it. But I can definitely go into some of the social commentary that I really did enjoy here. And going from there, I want to start with the religious aspect that we get here. Now, if you know me, one of my favorite subgenres is based around this and the corruption of those that are supposed to be religious now i'm sorry to any of those that i offend by what i'm going to say here but i think a good amount of people who follow religion use it as a crutch and can be corrupted like we see here in this movie even more so though i love that that the ones who are the loudest about it are usually the ones that don't really follow it as much as they should and they kind of just use it as a way to talk down or to preach to other people my thought here is that the repression is something that isn't good I mean, I will say it is good to do the right thing, and someone might need religion for that. And I don't have an issue there. If it helps you, great. I'm all for that. But with that said, I hate when people like we get here that are pushing it onto others, and it is satisfying to see them get a just punishment in my eyes, if I'm going to be completely honest here. I'm glad this movie decided to use a succubus as a creature as well. We don't get a lot of this type of creature in movies, 
And I think that it brings up an interesting duality here with the people that are in this theater from what I was just saying. My first experience with this type of monster is from the video game Castlevania Symphony of the Night that I played back on PlayStation, where the character encounters one of those while he is sleeping. I've seen, heard, and read more about them since then, and I know it is based on corruption with lust and desires, which is great when you have so much repression here. There is also a pretty solid backstory to this theater that we're in as well as to a former owner and some of the things that they were shown in this theater before you know everything has gone down and it looks like it was probably a couple decades before all this and there's also some interesting stuff with mr pike as well that all really worked for me what i did have a slight issue here though is that there are some inconsistencies with the creature and what it does to people todd has an initial encounter with it and he survives same could be said for Chaz as well soon after that. And then we get to see Todd disappear for a long time, and I don't know if I necessarily like that. I can understand why once we kind of see what happens to his character. And then we also get Mr. Pike showing up. I like these encounters that they have with this entity, but it just doesn't seem to make sense what the rules are and how it affects some of these characters. There are times when their sexual organs explode with ecstasy, and it kills them, which that does make sense to me. Where there are other times that it doesn't, since I'm a story guy, it doesn't seem like the writers actually know what they're kind of playing with things, though, and they're just using some things here and there for convenience. Now, despite these issues, though, I really did have a lot of fun with this movie. I think there's a really good blend of comedy with the horror elements, and I wasn't really expecting that. I usually have an issue with horror comedies that I don't really worry about the characters because they tend to just don't feel like they're that much in peril, and that's not the case that we got here. And I'm not going to lie, there was one scene in this that really spooked me where I called out because I wasn't expecting it. The movie never got boring for me and I thought it was paced well. It has a good runtime of just over an hour and a half. The ending left me a little bit confusing with what they try to do to defeat this demon and some of the things with that. But it does wrap up pretty nicely though. And I do think those are some interesting reveals for the characters that kept me intrigued to see how things were going to play out as well. That will take me to the acting of this movie, which I thought was pretty solid for what we got. And to be honest, though, their comedic timing was pretty on point. Dave's was pretty funny as that quirky, pervy teen in my eyes. He plays well off Saperstein, who is similar in a nerdier way. It almost kind of feels like we're getting a super bad here, where we have Abe is kind of like Jonah Hill type character in my eyes, where we have this awkward Todd who is more similar to Michael Sarah. Mueller I thought was pretty attractive. She does some horrible thing that she reveals something about somebody, and I liked it because it just kind of blindsided me a bit and then her character works though as well as she is the assistant manager here so she does have some responsibility with how things play out and i do like that we as this goes on we can see her definitely taking charge as well scott and tan are both pretty solid with jeff bringing quite a bit of comedic relief as well props to pierce and amber paul for all the nudity that they have in this movie i give them all the credit and it was pretty nice to look at as well I thought them with the rest of this cast rounded this out for what was needed. Now shifting this over to the effects of the movie, I thought overall they were pretty well done. The practical effects were really good and I was watching this as I said with Jamie and she pointed out a moment where she could tell some of the things didn't look real. I did agree with her at one point where we were seeing cuts on someone and there just wasn't enough blood coming out of it. That just didn't sit well to me because I think that's pretty easy to kind of remedy where you don't have to go over the top but just a little bit more there. Some of the CGI wasn't great either, but I think with that, they do a pretty good job of using it to accentuate things, which I think is good. Aside from that, though, I thought the effects were pretty above average on the whole. The last thing to go over would be the soundtrack for this. 
For the most part, it didn't really stand out to me, but that's not to say it was bad, because I really don't think that's the case. It fit for what was needed in fitting the mood of the scenes. What I really wanted to go over, though, is the uneasy feeling that I got from the, quote, porno, unquote, that they're watching in the movie theater. The music that was synced up with that was unnerving and got my anxiety going, and I give them a lot of credit for that and what that gave me. Now, with that said, I thought this movie was pretty solid on the whole. I like the cast of characters and what we got here, and putting them against this entity that is playing with their beliefs. I even think that we get a really good blend of comedy that worked for me, and we get something that doesn't always happen when you cross over the genres. I was concerned that these characters weren't necessarily safe. There are some inconsistencies with the rules for that monster, and some of the effects could have been a bit better, but I will say that the music accompanying the movie was, they watched was pretty unnerving. Overall, I'd say this movie was above average for me, though. Probably coming up just short of being a contender for the year end for me, but still really worth a viewing, in my opinion. Now, I really didn't have any trivia or anything that I kind of wanted to delve into. It is still pretty new, so there's not a whole lot out there, and I think I kind of went over everything that I wanted to here. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to the trailer for the second featured review. One million B.C. erupts on the screen with volcanic excitement. One million B.C. when the earth parted and the mountains fell. Primitive man and monstrous beasts fought each other to inherit the earth. Since time began, has the primitive scene been captured for the screen with such imaginative realism? Ah! Behold man, one million B.C. See Loana, the fair one, who deserted her tribe and risked her life to follow Tumak of the rock people, as big and strong as the beasts he fought for survival. Ah! fascinating, strange, and fearful creatures who roamed and ruled the Earth a million B.C. You will share the unending thrills and excitement of a world of primitive wonders, of primeval terror and savagery. You will indeed live in another world. In another time, as the centuries fall back to reveal the Earth 1 million B.C. Welcome back, and for the second feature review... If you couldn't tell from the trailer, is 1 million BC from 1940. This is co-directed by Hal Roach Jr. and Hal Roach. This is from an original screenplay by Mikkel Novak, George Baker, and Joseph Frickert. And then there's descriptive narration from Grover Jones that was also in the writing credits. This is starring Victor Mature, 
Carol Landis and Lon Chaney Jr. This is an adventure, fantasy, romance, sci-fi film, according to the IMDb, as well as being from the United States. This is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb, as well as a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a tale of prehistoric survival and love between a male and female belonging to opposing tribes that happen to be at slightly different stages of evolution. Now, this was a film that I learned about originally when I saw its remake of One Million Years B.C., the one with Raquel Welch. Now, this probably technically isn't a horror film, but it did appear on a list when I was searching through Letterboxd and trying to figure out all of the horror releases from the year of 1940. Now, we start off with this one in the present. We have a group that is exploring, and they have happened upon a cave. They go into it, and one of the group figures out that there's another room that's hidden through like a small, like, cut in the rock and inside there is an anthropologist who is portrayed by conrad nagel and he is also our narrator for the story and he's in there researching some cave drawings and he is more than happy to tell them what he has deciphered from them and the story begins with a tribe of hunters that are led by akoba who is lon cheney jr now his son i believe is tumac who is victor mature and he's trying to prove himself with his first kill of a what I thought was like a pig-like creature. Now, it does get the better of him, but he does end up killing it. But we get to see that Akoba is a jerk. Now, back in their cave, when they settle down for dinner, him being the alpha of this group gets to eat first, as do his dogs, before allowing the rest of his tribe to eat. Now, we also get to see that much like animals here, he also challenges his son as well as some of the other warriors, which you kind of see more with like gorillas or wolves to show who is dominant and that he is still the alpha. Now, with some events that go down, Tumac ends up falling into the river and we get to see some different landscapes as well as some other kind of animals until he washes upon a shore with a new tribe that lives nearby. Tumac is taken in by Leona, who is Carol Landis. This group gathers up vegetables and are, per are much more kinder than his tribe, and they work more of a society that is closer resembling to what we see today. Tumac is given food as he was knocked out at first, and they're helping to nurse him back, but he's actually quite rude. And then the next day, they are chased back to their cave as they're out gathering by a dinosaur, which I do believe at some point they call it an Allosaurus. Now, Tumac picks up some of the dropped vegetables and hoards them with some of the things that he considers are his. And we get to see their customs and their ways in which he starts to conform to. But a lot of this being that he finds Leona to be beautiful. But not all of it works out as well, though, as he starts butting heads pretty much immediately with Peto, who is Nigel de Brulier. They both seem to be taking a liking to Leona. On top of that, Tumac is trained as a warrior and wants Peto's spear. Now the problem here is that Peto actually made this spear and he shows Tumac how to do it himself, but he just really seems to want that one. And we get to see the feeling of wanting whatever he sees. So Tumac will force others to kind of give things up and he will bully them, which is pretty much acting out how his father treated him. But this way of acting causes him to be shunned from this new tribe as well as their cave. Now, he wants Leona to come with him. Things have changed with his original tribe, as well as we see something that happens with Akoba where he is injured during a hunt as well. Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap for this movie, as it doesn't have the deepest story, to be honest. I did like the aspect, though, that they're trying to tell this to a group of people who just stumbled upon this cave. It does make for an intriguing story if you're interested in listening to it. And you might be wondering, though, 
if this is actually horror or not from the things that I've said, I would lean towards this actually being more horror adjacent. And I only lump it in with this because of the giant monsters that we get in the movie, but not really enough to be considered a kaiju film as it's not that type of thing. Best aspect of this movie though, for me, is the anthropological look at these people. I know the synopsis is trying to say that the warrior tribe is less evolved, but I think that's too nice of a way to really describe it, as I think all of these people are pretty much at the same evolutionary level, but I should point out as well here, at the time of recording this, we're still in the pandemic for COVID-19, but what I was going to get at is the warrior tribe really feels like those Americans who are protesting against the stay-at-home orders. I don't want to be completely generalized here, but the warrior tribe is really the conservatives who are less educated and kind of are acting very childish about some of their reaction to things. And that's why I don't want to necessarily clump all Republicans into this, because I'm sure there are also people on the other side that are just as kind of this way. But the reason I bring this up that in the movie, Akoba is very animalistic. He's the alpha and bullies those that could challenge him, including his own son of Tumac. This really isn't that dissimilar to gorillas or wolves, like I said earlier. That is not to say that there isn't some intelligence. I just think it's poor leadership, and this has just been their way of life. So instead of bettering the society, they're going to continue on the way that things have always gone of status quo because it's always been that way, and this is the way that's worked for them for so long that there really couldn't be any other way in their eyes at this time. But then on the other side, though, you have this tribe that includes Leona and her people. They've learned that it is better for everyone to take care of the elderly, the children, and the women. The men do things that are like go hunting and whatnot that those that are not as able-bodied cannot do. That is not to say that the women just take care of the home and are less productive. Their society is much safer and smarter as they've developed aspects of farming, where that's a lot of times what I think I gathered are those that are not out hunting are caring to that type of work. And I think this is a great look at the cultural shock for Tumac. He is resistant at first, but he does relent. We also get to see some aspects of toxic masculinity in regards to Peito and Leona. Now, it's hard to really blame him here as we are looking at this from a group that doesn't really have society. What I don't like is him acting like a child and then getting his way when it comes to the spear and weapons as well as to Leona coming with him as it just feels like somebody throwing a temper tantrum and then giving them exactly what they want just to appease them. Another aspect to the story that I wanted to cover would be the last act of the movie. Tumac and Leona go back to his tribe. What is interesting here is that the women and men are rude to Leona. They're stuck in their ways and they don't like the changes she's trying to instill. It is a believable way of looking at it though. What ends up happening reminded me of something that I saw this year in the film of The Platform. You can try to talk and show these people the best way, but sometimes force is needed, unfortunately, and doing the hard thing of just making it happen to see that it does work and so they can see reason. The problem, though, is it isn't easy as this movie makes it out to be. By nature, humans are selfish. This movie is showing that, which is even crazy to think that probably the case even with these primitive people, and we're still not that much different even today. And I can see it just by scrolling through social media and listening to some of the arguments that I see people are making about what to do in this situation, and what to do kind of just in general as because of how hard they're working, they should be entitled to do these type of things instead of doing it a better way, and somebody's eventually going to have to bite the bullet. But I will get off my soapbox here 
and should point out that this movie does have some historical inaccuracies as well. From what I've learned, these dinosaurs weren't around and were dead long before these primitive men were. I also don't think that there were things like woolly mammoths around at that time with dinosaurs either. I'm willing to overlook some of this as this probably was during a time when they didn't know this information. The movie uses quite a bit of green screen, which I'm going to shift this over to the actual film itself and what they're showing us. Now it doesn't look great, but I can't fault the movie as this is 80 years old for the technology that they're using. But something I wanted to bring up here, some trivia that I looked up, is that the special effects that were used in this were so good that footage from this film is used in numerous other ones that were produced well into the like 1960s. And I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure that A Clockwork Orange is probably taking something from this. And I also believe that the remake of this also incorporated some of this footage into that one as well. But I do have to say, it did make me laugh when they use interesting ways of splicing films to have just your normal lizards to look giant and blowing up the image to pair it with our actors and they make that image look smaller because I mean in all reality these people are towering over these lizards if we're filming it like normal but adding things that way make it look interesting and make it does look large and I actually was pretty impressed with some of that to go from that as well we get to see a crocodile that they're using as a dinosaur but they're just putting something on its back to make it look like it has that fin and then I'm pretty sure they just put fur onto elephants to make them into woolly mammoths. I give a lot of credit to doing that, as well as the cinematography here. Now, I do have to tell you, the version that I watched was also colorized, which wasn't great at times. I watched it on YouTube, so I do actually want to seek out an original black and white, just to kind of feel how it was originally intended to everybody. Now, the last thing I wanted to go over would be the acting. I do have to give credit, as aside from the opening prologue, there's no actual dialogue in the movie. Now, we do have guttural sounds and making noises, but I like how there really wasn't a language back then, so they didn't have a way to communicate, and they have to be creative. Now, I do find that interesting, as we're not too far removed from the silent era, where this could have easily fit in there as well. Mature, I thought, does really well as the misogynistic beta male that wants and striving to be an alpha. Landis is quite good-looking, and I liked her softness as the woman that breaks Tumac. Chaney is just a legend, and I wasn't expecting him to see him here, but I thought he did a solid job, and a lot of that goes back to he did inherit some talents from his father where he can do a lot with his facial expressions, and just the look that they give to him later in the movie I thought worked well. Brulier and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed in my opinion. So now with that said, this is an interesting film for sure. I do like with some of the social commentary and looking at these primitive people as they correlate to what we're seeing even today. We do get some historical inaccuracies, which I'm willing to overlook a bit with the lack of data and technology to prove theories that we have now. thought the effects were a bit cheesy by today's standards, but pretty close to state-of-the-art back then. The acting was pretty solid in my opinion. I did find it to be a bit boring, and there's not really a lot in the way of story. That was most likely the case as to why. Uh, the soundtrack and score, I think, I read did win an Academy Award, but I wasn't overly impressed by it. There wasn't much that I hadn't heard from before or after it, to be honest, as it just kind of felt generic, but congrats that they did win, you know, back in 40. I did enjoy this movie and found it to be just over average for me. Not great by any stretch, just an interesting film in history. So my rating here was actually a 6 out of 10. Now I do have just some trivia that I wanted to rattle off to you. This was the number one box office attraction of 1940. Now that is excluding the rollover receipts for Gone with the Wind, which is kind of tough because that came out in 1939 and just rolled over is what they mean. 
This film was released in Britain, but it was heavily edited due to their strict laws against animal cruelty, which I think we need to do better in the United States, which hard to blame something that was 80 years ago, but that does bother me to see that Britain was better than us there. In the remake of this movie from 66, Robert Brown wore identical makeup when playing a Koba that was worn by Lon Chaney Jr. in this film. In order to get the lizards to move, heaters had to be turned on full blast because reptiles don't move in cold weather. This was originally supposed to be directed by D.W. Griffith. However, he quit in the middle of filming, so Hal Roach and his son completed the project. And the reason being, it seems, is that according to an article in the New York Times, Griffith was working as a producer on the film and had his name removed from the credits because of a disagreement he had with Roach. He said that Mr. Roach did not feel it was necessary to give the characters as much individuality as I thought was needed, and so I did not wish to appear responsible for the picture by having my name on it, which I actually think that might have helped me is it was kind of hard to figure out who was who, and I think Roach was trying to focus more on the effects and everything going on around it. Where I do think if you would have made these characters be a little bit more distinct, I probably would have came up on this film, to be honest. It does look like Chaney had designed his own makeup for his character, but couldn't use it owing to a cosmetician's union's rules. For its 1946 theatrical re-release, favorite films often paired this with a re-release of Hal Roach's Of Mice and Men from 39. Victor Mature and Carol Landis starred together in a film noir, I Wake Up Screaming, just a few years later. This is the final film of the actress Rosemary Themby. This film got its first telecast in New York City in 1948 as part of a newly acquired series of three dozen of Hal Roach's films that were all originally theatrically released in 1931 through 43 and now being syndicated for television broadcast by Regal Television Pictures. Its earliest documented teleclass though was in St. Louis in 1948 in Boston on in 49 and Los Angeles in 49 as well as Atlanta and Cincinnati of that same year. Now that is all I really wanted to delve into the, with this movie. There's not really a whole lot more like that I could do in like a spoiler section unless I did more of a complete scene by scene breakdown type thing. Don't really want to do that and bore you here. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. When you go on Gilman Drips Stuck right out in nature Forage in the forest like a primate Using chopping tools instead of hot plates
I want to thank you for listening to Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast, episode number 28. And just to close this show out here, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of the written reviews of anything on this show or any of my past reviews, that is Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. On Facebook, you can follow me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, you can follow me at Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And now the Flick Chat app has gotten a little bit livelier there as I have been communicating back and forth with Lonely Bob, so shout out to him. And but if you would like to get in touch with me there all you have to do is download the app on either android or your iphone and my join code for that is journey with a cinephile just an app that you can download and chat through that and then for the next episode i do believe it's going to be the 2020 release is we summon the darkness and then the 1940s film is dr cyclops so i'm pretty excited as i don't really know a whole lot about either of them but i do have the one already secured and i just have to rent the other one but i want to thank you once again for listening to my podcast here and if you get a chance if you could go ahead and subscribe so you never miss an episode and if you don't mind either rating or reviewing me on there just because I am looking, you know, for any sort of feedback to anything that I'm doing that you don't like or anything that I am doing like and you'd like more of. Regardless, though, thank you once again for listening. This is David Garrett Jr. signing off.